This is issue 401 of the FATN Talking News monthly magazine for March 2024. This is Clive Wouters with you this week, and with me reading are Robert Byrne. Hello. And Jeff Green. Hello. And our engineer is Charles Fernley. Hello. Our items this month have been taken from Hampshire Life, the Herald Newspapers, the News and Mail, the Reader's Digest, Countryfile Magazine, and Round and About. During the recording, we will give the track number from time to time, but not for every story. So, the stories in this month's magazine are as follows. Track one is this introduction. Track two, Culinary Grande Dame. Track three, Beatrice Schilling, Pioneer Engineer. Track four, Rack Veteran Trailblazer Reminisces. Track five, Where does the wildlife go in winter? Track six, hush, it's spring. Track seven, gnome sweet gnome. Track eight, the interview with Holly Mills. Track nine, finding a good fairy. Track ten, Hampshire heroes, the RNLI. Track eleven, don't be a bystander. Track 12, Letter from Gary. Track 13 is our poetry selection. Track 14, Cozy Crime. And finally, track 15, Sing It Out Loud. As it is International Women's Day this month, our first group of items are celebrating remarkable women. So over to Robert for our first story. And this is a story about culinary grand dame. Paola Westbeek celebrates the women who have influenced her journey in gastronomy. It's been 20 years since the cookbook changed my life. Before devouring every page and nearly every recipe in Nigella Lawson's Feast 2004, I didn't give much thought to what I ate. Or perhaps I did, but not in a way that excited me. Food was sustenance and cooking a chore I wasn't particularly good at. Nigella transformed my relationship with food, changing it from a source of panic to one of infinite pleasure. Leafing through the food-splattered pages of feast, I began to think of the women who shaped my culinary upbringing. These grand dames of gastronomy not only influenced me profoundly with their words, recipes, an unwavering passion for the art of eating, but they also left their mark on the culinary world in significant ways. Take Eugenie Brazier, for example, who grew up with barely enough to eat, yet with plenty of determination to achieve great things. After years of hard work on farms and later as a humble cook, she used the little savings she had to buy an old grocery store in Lyon and open La Mer Brazier a restaurant that would attract the likes of Charles de Gaulle and Marlene Dietrich. A second location followed, and in 1933 she became the first chef ever to hold six Michelin stars simultaneously, three for each restaurant. Hailed as the mother of modern French cooking, Brazier's simple yet elegant food was often lauded in the work of culinary author Elizabeth David, a grand dame in her own right, who with her pen changed the way Britain ate. David developed a passion for French cuisine at the age of 16, 
while studying history and literature in Paris. Upon her return to England, it wasn't her studies that had left a lasting impression, but the food she had discovered. In French Provincial Cooking, 1960, she writes, Forgotten were the Sorbonne professors and the yards of Racine learned by heart. What had stuck was a taste for a kind of food quite ideally unlike anything I had known before. She travelled extensively, spending time in Italy, Greece, Egypt and India, countries where she learned to cook the most exotic dishes with beautifully vibrant ingredients like lemon, apricots, tomatoes, almonds and olive oil. Dismayed by the drab food she encountered upon her return to post-war Britain in 1946, she found solace in writing about her sunny culinary experiences, which in turn filled the hearts of the British with light and hope. When rationing ended in 1954 and foreign products slowly became available, David's recipes made Mediterranean cuisine accessible, bringing much-needed colour and culinary joy to tables across the (coughs) UK. What David did for the UK, the exuberant and infinitely passionate Julia Child, who needs a little introduction, did for America. Child demystified French cuisine with her iconic cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, 1961, and became the country's first celebrity chef. At a time when TV dinners and tin foods were at the height of their popularity, she inspired home cooks to try elegant recipes, teaching them about techniques and the use of quality ingredients in an approachable and endearing way. While Julia Child tempted us with her recipes, it was the prolific American author M.F.K. Fisher who enlightened us with her exquisite and sensual culinary prose about the art of food and the taste of living. One of my favourite books is Love in a Dish, a charming collection of culinary experiences that transport you to French villages and even describe how the love of food can potentially save a marriage. In honour of International Women's Day this March, let us celebrate the legacy of these exceptional culinary legends. May their contributions to gastronomy remain deliciously relevant and continue to inspire us to save a life, one bite at a time. This next article is entitled Schilling and the Spitfire. Beatrice Schilling was a trailblazer for women engineers at a time when the profession was dominated by men. Born in Waterlooville on March 8, 1909, Beatrice Schilling was the daughter of butcher Henry Schilling and Annie, known as Nancy. As a child, Beatrice exhibited every indication of being a tomboy, from spending her pocket money on tools to winning prizes for Meccano. She was just 14 when she bought her first motorcycle, before showing her fledgling engineering nous by taking its engine apart, then reassembling it. Beatrice's love of motorbikes continued through the 1930s, and in 1934 she became one of only three women to gain the British Motorcycle Racing Club's gold medal for completing a lap of the famed Brooklyn Circuit at over 100 miles an hour on her Norton M30. In 1924, in her mid-teens, Beatrice decided she wanted to become an engineer. After leaving school, she went to work for an electrical engineering firm before attending the Victoria University of Manchester. There, at what is now part of the University of Manchester, she was one of just two women to obtain a BSc degree. 
After a further year's study, Beatrice gained an MSc in Mechanical Engineering. Finding gainful employment in her chosen field wasn't easy, though. Not only was Beatrice facing the inevitable sexism of the time, but she was also hindered by a country struggling with a deep economic depression. She did get a research assistant's position at the University of Birmingham, though, and in 1936 became a scientific officer at the Royal Aircraft Establishment, RAE, the research and development wing of the RAF in Farnborough. Beginning with technical authoring, she transferred to the kind of employee she preferred, working on aircraft engines. Beatrice was married in September 1938 to George Naylor, who was also employed at the RAE and went on to be a bomber pilot during World War II in the rank of flight lieutenant and earning the Distinguished Flying Cross. With the war underway, Beatrice was promoted to Technical Officer Leading Carburetor R&D, later becoming Principal Technical Officer. It was in this role that Beatrice designed a fix to solve the problem of Rolls-Royce Merlin engines flooding from too much fuel, losing power and stalling during negative G-manoeuvres. Although she worked on numerous projects during the war, it's this work for which she's most remembered. Battle of Britain pilots were grateful that this design flaw had been solved, as it enabled Spitfires and Hurricanes to compete with Messerschmitts on at least equal terms and was an invaluable contribution to the outcome of the aerial battle that ultimately saw off the German invasion threat in 1940. By March 1941, she'd toured RAF fighter stations, installing her adaptation in the Merlin engines. Aptly, perhaps, Beatrice was dubbed Tilly, after utilitarian vehicles used by the armed services. Beatrice was awarded the OBE by King George VI in 1947. She was also involved in Britain's Blue Streak missile development. This IRBM, which stands for Intermediate Range Ballistic Missile, was envisaged as the country's means of maintaining an independent nuclear deterrent. Beatrice's contributions were many and varied, even helping design and build a bobsled for the RAF's 1968 Winter Olympic team. She would continue working for the RAE until retiring in 1969. However, she never obtained one of the top positions, although she was in every sense more than worthy, but these jobs were an all-male preserve back then. Beatrice Schilling is remembered in the naming of a Farnborough pub, the Tilly Schilling, which was opened in 2011. Some of Beatrice's racing badges and trophies are in the possession of the Brooklands Museum a museum devoted to her twin loves of aviation and motoring and occupying part of the former Brooklyn circuit she once tore around leathers flapping. A plaque was unveiled in her hometown at Waterlooville Library in 2019 to commemorate her manifold achievements with a further plaque unveiled in Schilling Place the following year. 
Royal Holloway, University of London, opened its new Department of Electronic Engineering, also in 2019, in its Beatrice Schilling Building. It's not the only UK university to have a building named after our Beatrice, as Coventry University went down the same road in 2020. This is track number four. A veteran's thrilling career was among those being celebrated as the Women's Royal Army Corps Association marked its 75th anniversary in Guildford last month. From driving trucks straight after her A-levels to near misses with ballistics, keeping women safe from nearby male barracks, roles at NATO and spearheading female admittance to Sandhurst, Audrey Smith's army career is quite a tale. Audrey, 84, did not initially plan on joining the army. She went to the University of Nottingham in 1957 to read economics and recalls being excited about eventually getting a job in that field. However, all that changed when she got there. She said, we went to the Freshers' Fair. I got to the OTC, the University Officers' Training Corps stand, and we chatted away. We went back to our hall of residence, and the female sergeant major kept appearing and saying, you know, you must come and join the OTC. We were not keen for this, but eventually, after about a week, we were worn down. Soon after joining, she was driving every single vehicle on offer, including an articulated lorry, as she had a driving license. Her enthusiasm meant that by her second year, she was asked if she wanted to go for a commission in the Territorial Army. Despite passing the board, there were no vacancies for a woman in the area, and she was sent to her local regiment, where she ended up in a RAC battalion. The Women's Royal Army Corps, RAC, was formed in 1949 following the disbanding of the Auxiliary Territorial Service, the ATS. It was the corps to which all women in the British Army belonged to until 1992, when it was integrated. Audrey's career went from strength to strength, despite her possibly being the only rack officer who embarked on a regular career with no formal training. One memory that stands out is a near miss with a missile in 1965. She was the officer responsible for providing records for some gunner trials when she found herself in a precarious position. She said, I was standing on top of a hill when I suddenly wondered why I was standing on my own. Then I saw this weapon. I'd never moved so fast in my life. Her job took her all over the UK and the world. She was posted to Cyprus, Berlin and Singapore, where she learnt some important life skills. After her tour, she was promoted to major and posted to com commandant of the newly opened Duchess of Kent barracks in Aldershot. Audrey said, I mean, it was enormous. It had 466 beds for service women and 35 beds for sergeants. It had its own medical centre, its own gym. It was a complete sort of little complex. Her time in the army was not only personally remarkable, but also reflects the transformation in the roles of women. When she joined the RAC, women did not even carry guns, something she soon tried to negotiate. Audrey played a pioneering role in moving things forward and was responsible for preparing the papers which led to women first going to Sandhurst in 1984. She said, we broke all sorts of glass ceilings. We had people going to the Army Staff College. 
which is quite normal now, but only a very small number went to the Army Staff College, then you were in a position that you could compete for jobs in exactly the same way as the men could. When I left the Army Staff College, I got a job as the senior officer in charge of personnel in Shrewsbury. And, of course, when I finished the job, I handed over to a man, because it could be done by a man or a woman. It was a period of transformation at the rack. It was a wonderful step forward that we could actually have a full career. And then gradually, we kept breaking the barriers on the way up. And eventually, she became the second officer to become a lieutenant colonel on the staff. However, it was not easy. She added, if you took on these jobs, you had to make sure you did them well, because if you didn't, no one else would ever follow you, because a woman can't do that. We had to work terribly hard to be good. Her achievements were recognised when she was awarded Freedom of the Borough of Guildford, where she has lived on and off for several decades. Our next article poses the question, where does all the wildlife go in winter? Have you ever wondered what happens to some of our iconic heathland species in the winter months? The Wealdon Heath Special Protection Area is home to a wide range of rare and endangered species. Many of these species are migratory and choose to travel to warmer climes this, this time of year. However, there are many that do stay put as temperatures plummet. Warmer Forest, south of Borden and to the east of Liphook, is unique in being home to 12 out of 13 of our native UK amphibian and reptile species. In the spring and summer, it's not uncommon to see adders basking in the sun or hear the quick rustle of a common lizard as it scurries into the undergrowth. But what happens to them in the winter? All British amphibian and reptile species hibernate over the winter months between October to February. Since they cannot tolerate exposure to very cold weather, they take shelter in areas such as loose soil, compost heaps or log piles, pond liners and garden sheds. While most hibernate on land, there are some amphibians that will hibernate in ponds or, if we have a mild winter, some newts will enter a state of low activity rather than hibernate. With many of our amphibian and reptile species being protected by law, how can you help look after them? By making small changes to your garden, you can encourage a wide range of wildlife to your garden, creating refuge areas near to ponds in the autumn, and trying not to disturb rockeries or log piles and leaf litter this time of year can help reduce disturbance and provide these specialised creatures with the best chance to thrive. If you do come across a newt, toad or frog this time of year in your garden, try to place it near to a suitable hibernation place where it could crawl back in and return to its slumber until the days start to get warmer again. Whilst the amphibians, reptiles, bats and many insects snooze, this is a great time to connect with nature and observe some of our overwintering birds. Out on the heaths you're likely to hear the teacher, teacher, of the great tit, the musical notes of the robin, or the scratchy song of the Dartford warbler. Now is also the perfect time to embrace the darkness and discover the magical world of nocturnal wildlife and the night sky. If you're out admiring the stars, you might also be lucky enough to hear the hoot of a tawny owl. 
hush its spring. To fully appreciate the power of the season, shut your eyes and listen, urges Ajay Tagala. As dark, chill winter gradually gives way to lengthening hours of daylight and warming temperatures, we find ourselves looking for signs that nature is responding to seasonal changes, especially emerging leaves and flowers. But as we go about our busy lives, the soundscape of spring sometimes goes unnoticed. Take some time to slow down, make an effort to tune in, and there is a wealth of natural sounds to soak up. In wilder parts of the countryside, the roar of traffic fades to a distant hum. Unpolluted by modern murmurs, nature's voices sing out, soothing listeners, and sometimes even surprising or unsettling us. The National Trust's Wiccan Fen Nature Reserve in Cambridgeshire is my place of work. It's also a place where my ears can detox. The baseline in the oral landscape of Wiccan Fen is wind whispering through the reeds. Such a calming, comforting sound, it has the power to brush away worries, opening the mind to relaxation and reflection. Wiccan's many watercourses are mostly still or gently flowing, occasionally lapping against a boat in harmony with the meditative swishing of reeds, rushes and sedge. But splashes are made as the breeding season begins for many creatures. I switch from trance-like to suspenseful when a tiny plop announces a favourite small mammal, the water vole. Usually shy and elusive, this endearing rodent is rarely seen, more often heard as it drops beneath the surface like a pebble into a pool. Much larger herbivores make bigger noises in the rivers and drains with their hooves and tongues. Semi-wild highland cattle and conic polies graze here year-round. Rangers search for the free-roaming herds daily, checking on their welfare, listening for clues to their whereabouts. Splashing, scratching, mooing, grunting, trotting, rubbing and ripping vegetation. I love the surprisingly loud sound the animals make as they munch intently on fresh spring grass, gorging themselves on its green goodness. Back in the reeds there's a sound like a piglet squealing. I was shocked when I first learned these were not the vocalizations of a mammal, but a bird. Slightly smaller than the moorhen, the water rail utters a disturbing alarm known as charming, which is a territorial call. The water rail's call is not the only odd avian announcement resonating from the reed bed. Between April and June, a host of birds add their voices to the impressive dawn chorus, from the sweet melodies of the song thrush to the insect-like reeling of the grasshopper warbler. In contrast to this delightful singing is a haunting low-pitched boom. It sounds like a foghorn or someone blowing into an empty bottle. The territorial boom of a male bittern reaches up to 100 decibels, making it Britain's loudest bird. And another far-carrying call can now be heard across Wiccan Fen, 
the eerie bugling of cranes. As diverse as the soundscape of Wiccan Fen is, one bird call stands out. For me and many others, the real herald of spring is the unmistakable cuckoo, cuckoo. The fact cuckoos are only heard between April and June makes them a true sound of spring to be savoured and celebrated. And this is track seven. And while we're outdoors, you might be thinking of your garden. And uh, the next item perhaps will give you some ideas. It comes from the Talking News Federation, which has its own style of presentation and introduces us to the garden gnome. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Hello, this is Jan with some ideas from the gardening expert at the MK Pulse magazine based in Milton Keynes. Gnome, sweet gnome. To have gnome or not to have gnome? If that is the question posed to gardeners, you may hear some choice replies, because these little folks are incredibly divisive. They are loved by some and loathed by others. But the idea of small stone figures in our garden spaces is hardly a new thing and actually dates back to Roman times. Indeed, Priapus, the ancient phallic god of fertility, was a regular feature in the gardens of the time. During the Renaissance period, gardens of wealthy villas sported groups of stone grotesques, including punch-style figures, typically a metre tall, and garishly painted. In Germany, the history of these garden figures has become inextricably confused with the tradition of little folk, or dwarves, who were believed to help in the mines and around the farm. Dr. Twiggs Way gnomes more than most about the little beings. The garden and landscape historian has even issued a book on the subject, Garden Gnomes, A History. Northamptonshire is home to what is believed to be the oldest surviving example. Who brought the first gnome to England will probably never be proven, but the first to record using the figures in his garden was Charles Isham at Lamport Hall, who by the 1870s had a series of gnome tableau in amongst his giant rock garden, Twig said. Lampy, the sole survivor of the once numerous Lamport gnomes, now lays claim to being the oldest garden gnome in England and regularly attends gnome conferences around the world with a suitably high holiday insurance of a million pounds. Sir Frank Crisp at Friar Park in Oxfordshire was another early acquirer of the garden gnome with his grand country house garden housing several of the larger one-metre-tall gnomes by the late 1890s, Twig said. And they are a little bit rock and roll too. It was Sir Frank Crisp's gnomes that featured so prominently on the cover of the George Harrison album All Things Must Pass, she explained. In the first decade of the 20th century, gnomes became popular and high-status features of country house gardens and venerable vicarages. But the reputation of the Germanic gnome suffered with the outbreak of World War I. 
Disney eventually revived the dwarfish fashion with their now classic Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. In the 1970s, a whole new gardening generation rushed to buy multicoloured plastic gnomes dressed in football strips, beachwear and even disguised as smurfs, said Twigs. Solar-driven gnomes whistled and farted and naughty gnomes boasted areas of the gnomish anatomy that Priapus would have been proud. Perhaps not unconnected with the spread of gnomish undress, the late 20th century also saw the much-awaited arrival of the female gnome. These days, you can even get punk rock icons, the Ramones, and indie fellas, Oasis, in gnome form. Love them or loathe them. How does Twiggs view the chaps and ladies in the red pointed hats? I see gnomes in the context of the wide variety of features that have graced our gardens over the centuries as the height of fashion at the time, but were later derided. Until, of course, fashion turned again. TNF Soundings And this is track eight, and we come to our monthly interview. And this is the second case study of Living with Visual Impairment, where Anne Newson talks to Holly Mills, who has congenital glaucoma. Hello, I'm Anne Newson, as you know, and a previous interview, you probably remember, I zoomed in on the, the Talking News Federation workshops, and I met two inspirational people. One was Luke Hart, whom you've already listened to, and the other is Holly Mills. And she's kindly given up time today to have a chat and tell us all about her disability and how she's coping with it. And she's actually the information officer for the Warsaw Society for the Blind. So, hello, Holly. Hi, Anne. Thanks so much for having me today. I was very inspired by your story. Luke, he was telling us earlier on about this horrendous accident he'd had, which caused him to lose his sight. But your problem is totally different, isn't it? So can you tell us, the listeners, about how you lost your sight? How much sight do you have? Do you have any at all? Yeah, I do. So I've been registered as severely sight impaired or legally blind since I was about 10. So I've got congenital glaucoma. So I was born with glaucoma. I inherited it off of my mom. So I've been losing my sight since I was born. And with glaucoma, it's mainly, it affects your peripheral vision. So the sides of your vision and kind of takes over your sight. So over time, you go completely blind or, or hopefully not, but um, you lose a lot of your sight. But uh, so my sight at the moment is 6.36 or 6 over 40. So that means somebody with 20-20 vision could see from 36 metres or 40 metres away. I would need to be six metres away from it. And I've only heard of glaucoma with older people. I haven't heard mm. of it anyone so young. Is, is that quite unique or unusual? I can't remember what the stats are, but it's definitely rarer to have it congenitally. But you can either have it from when you're born or a lot more people develop it when they're older, with glaucoma being like one of the leading causes of blindness in people over 40. So it's definitely more common in older people. And you said 10, you lost your sight. How did you cope with this? So my mum 
has glaucoma in just one of her eyes and she's basically blind in that eye. So when I was about six months old, and she said I used to get very watery eyes and I, I always used to blink away from sunlight. She kept on taking me to the doctors and they're like, no, she's fine. It must just be conjunctivitis. And then when I was about six months old, she took me in and they tested my eyes and they went, oh, no. And then they dragged me in for my first eye surgery because with glaucoma, you've got channels in your eyes where fluid runs around your eyes constantly to make sure that they work properly and the pressure in your eyes doesn't build up. But with glaucoma, these drainage canals are either blocked or just aren't open properly. So surgeries can open them back up, basically. So when I was six months old and then quite a few more times up until when I was 14, I had these trabeculectomies or trabeculotomies, they're called. I think I've had three or four in my left and three in my right. And then when I was 14, they put a shunt in my left eye to make a more permanent drainage canal to make sure that my sight didn't get any worse. Because when the pressure builds up in your eye, it presses against your optic nerve and reduces your peripheral vision. So any sight that you do lose like that can't be regained again. So they can make sure it doesn't get any worse. So everything that I'd lost up to when I was six months couldn't be regained. Did you go to an ordinary school or did you have to go to a special school? I went to an ordinary school, an ordinary like public school. So I had help from the physical and sensory services when I was little. So I had my own teaching assistant in primary school and I had touch typing lessons. They used to come in every few months to check my visual fields with a tennis ball where they'd put, say, stare at my nose and then they'd move the tennis ball and see how far away I could see it in my peripheral vision. And um, then once I was into high school, they made sure I had like a symbol cane so that when I was out and about, people could tell that I was visually impaired. I currently don't have to use a roller cane yet. And I don't have a guide dog yet. Like I never know. I might I might need to in the future. Like getting public transport and things is getting harder. And and what about your friends? Were they supportive? Because children can be really unkind, can't they? Not intentionally. It's just because you know, they don't understand. Uh, did you have any problems at school like that, or were they understanding and supportive? I'm very lucky. That I've always had very good friends. People in primary school, I think, because I'd had the teaching assistant and things, and every so often they'd come in and do like. This is an interesting class about sight. Let's all learn some Braille. That happens sometimes in primary school. People were less nice in high school. Like I'd get comments of like, oh, Holly, why are you trying to climb into the computer? Are you going to try and make it eat you? And then I remember once, I think I was in year 10, we had a substitute teacher and I put my hand up and she's like, I'll copy everything off the board. And I said, oh, miss, I can't see the board. And she said, OK, took the desk, pushed it up to the board in front of everybody, in front of the whole class and said, sit there and do it then. And the whole class, even the people that weren't particularly nice to me were like, oh, miss, you can't do that. She really can't see. She's visually impaired. You can't do that. Oh, so they were supportive to you, which is just lovely, really. I bet the teacher. Yeah, that was really nice. I was really surprised. (laughs) Oh, that's good. And then so when you left school, what did you do then? So I went to college to do A-levels. Didn't do particularly well in those. Nothing to do with my eyesight. I think I just picked really hard. And then I went to university after a a different course that helped me to get into university and did a degree in working with children, young people and families and got a first. So they were really good at uni with my site. So one of my lecturers, just coincidentally, used to work for RNIB. So kind of had a level of awareness of site loss that generally people don't have. So always made sure that I had printouts of slides and things. 
And so Luke was saying that because he's been through it, and obviously very different to you, but still sight loss, he understands people more than he used to. And and do you feel that you have a a better relationship with people and an understanding because you've been suffering and still are in a way? I'd say so. You kind of have to trust people more, I find, as a visually impaired person. Like if you're a crossing and you ask somebody, like if it isn't beeping or if the cone underneath the traffic lights isn't spinning, you have to trust that the people that are around you aren't going to get you hit by a car. So I think in a way of trusting people more, I can also empathise with other people more on other things. So when I've struggled with things, I can think, oh, other people might be struggling with other things, if that makes sense. You're young and energetic and you like to go out and about. So what advice would you give to possibly some uh, listeners who might be recently visually impaired or might have macular degeneration? So it's worsening and they might be frightened of of going out into the big outside world and, and become almost reclusive. What What sort of advice can you give them or suggestions to help them through that period? It can be really scary, especially when your sight deteriorates really quickly or very unexpectedly. I think the main kind of advice I give would be to try and seek support outside family or friends. So like, I know not everybody's local to Warsaw, but with Warsaw Society for the Blind, we've got a lot of clients that come in who say finding our day centre and our community workers has really helped them that they wouldn't have been able to get out and about if they hadn't found it. So seeking some sort of outside support, even if it's just somebody to talk to or finding other other visually impaired people who might have been visually impaired longer than you can be really helpful in finding out that you can be more independent. Because it's very important for us all to keep our independence if we can. Definitely. And it's really harder for for you, obviously. Uh, and you mentioned the, a, a guide dog. Do you think you might have one at some time? Or? Maybe in the future. Like I know a couple of people with guide dogs, and they've really revolutionised like, how they get out. One of the things I say, because I go out and do talks for the for my job about sight loss and like to try and get rid of some of the misconceptions about sight loss is um about how guide dogs don't have sat nav and you still need to be able to sort of know where you're going, but the dog can help you find that. So you, you still need to know. So if I wanted to go to Tesco, which is around the corner from work, I would still need to know how to get to Tesco. The dog would just help me avoid any obstacles in the same way that a cane would. But I think it's a good level of companionship to have as well. I'm not a doggy person. You've got mm. to enjoy having dogs and relate to dogs really well. Perhaps that comes naturally when you rely on a dog quite so much. Yeah, I think it's probably a case of if you're not an animal person, probably don't get a guide dog. Because if, yeah. if you already haven't, because I, I haven't grown up with dogs and things. I think we had a couple of houses when I was little, but other than that, we haven't really had animals. So if my first dog was a guide dog, it'd probably be quite hard. To adjust, absolutely, I would imagine so. So when you finished your degree, what, what did you do then? What, what was your first job? So my first job was for a charity in Birmingham, trying to help people get into work. So I really enjoyed that. So that was kind of my first outreach position. But unfortunately, I got that around lockdown times. So then we got made redundant and then I didn't manage to get another job until I found this from with Warsaw Society. And so you, you say you go out to, to organisations, groups or, or whatever or individuals? Yeah, so, so I go out to organisations to deliver talks. Soon I'm going to be starting up these kind of information stands in GP practices. Tell us a bit more about that. So I'll be going along on days where they've got 
Phoenix to kind of be a port of call for people who either don't know a lot about sight loss or might have just been diagnosed. Because you find a lot that, especially with macular degeneration, people are being told by the consultants, oh, you've got macular degeneration, there's nothing else we can do for you. And then they're just kind of left with no support. So we kind of want to either let them know that we can be there as an initial port of call for them or hopefully intervene before a diagnosis has been given. Because once you're in the mindset of that there isn't any help, it can be really difficult to then go out and seek it. If people know that there is help out there and that there's people here in the day centre that have had macular degeneration and thought there was no hope and then found us, can come in and chat to their friends and still go out them to know that we're there. Suddenly to lose your sight are very daunting and also isolating and frightening. Definitely. And do you live by yourself? I still live with my parents at the moment. So I moved out for university and then moved back home after I finished uni. Um, um, my parents are really lovely and are letting me save up to get a mortgage. So I'm really lucky in that way. And you're being spoiled while you can. They did the same for my brother and sister. So said uh, it's only fair. I'm, I'm making sure I save like a decent chunk of my wage every month. You hope to go it alone at some time. So I know there's going to be different stresses once I move out of running a household. And even something as simple as like sometimes if I go out shopping and everything's moved, that can be a big stress. I was speaking to my friend about my eyes the other day, to be fair, and I said um, I just get really frustrated because I, I only work 25 hours a week. I don't work full time. So I was saying I feel really frustrated because I shouldn't be as tired as I am because I only work part time. And she's like, well, Holly, it's not a case of should or shouldn't. You don't need to feel bad because at the end of the day, if you're tired, and if you're frustrated, because you need to accept that things are going to be harder for you than if you weren't visually impaired. And I can get on with things and I can definitely still do other than driving. I can't drive. Other than that, I can do anything that a sighted person can do, but it will take longer. And you've got to have that determination, haven't you? Exactly, which most of the time I find that I and other visually impaired people do. Like sometimes I'll go into the kitchen at work and we have a sugar jar, coffee jar and a jar of tea bags. And sometimes people switch over the tea bags and the sugar. I don't know why. But on the occasion where I've gone to dip my hand in the tea bags and then I'm just my hands just covered in sugar and I'll be like, right, can you just leave the jars in the same place, please? I can understand how you feel. You mentioned the supermarket. They're going into a supermarket where you automatically go for the sugar or the tea and they've changed it all around. I mean, I find that frustrating. I can see. So it must be even worse for you. Luke was saying he was fortunate that he had some really good friends that he could talk to, cry with, tell them how he's really feeling. Uh, and obviously you had your mother and your family. But have you found that? Friends have been really understanding and supportive to you over the years. Definitely. I'm so lucky to be surrounded by such a good group of friends. Like, in a, one of my biggest hobbies outside work is I do pantomime. So I write and direct pantomimes. My, my best friend uh, co-produced this one with me. So the first pantomime I ever produced, um, I was kind of left in the lurch and I had to produce it by myself. And then the committee came back to me and said, we really want you to do another show. But um, we don't know how to tell you this, but you can't see properly. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know that. And so my, my best friend stepped up and started co-producing with me. So I'm kind of like the creative side of it to tell the actors what they're doing and run the rehearsals. And she can see <laughs> and does the rest of the bits that I can't see. She can see that they're doing what you tell them to do. 
Yeah, exactly. And say, oh, do you think they need to do more like this? Or like once we get into the theatre and I can't see onto the stage, she can make sure that they're all doing things correctly and feed that back to me. I, I can't imagine directing a play and not being able to see the, the picture, the movements, the actors' reactions to each other and everything. But your friend does all that for you. Yeah, she's, she's brilliant. She's a genius. She's a great producer. <laughs> so you just do pantomimes, do you? Yeah, I, I write them and then direct them. We do singing summer shows in the um, summer, so we just do two shows a year. So I sing in those, but you don't really need to be able to see to do that. So. <laughs> so how did you get involved in this in the first place then? My sister's eight and a half years older than me, and she started doing panto when I was six. And I'd go up to the secretary at the time and be like, when can I join, please? When can I join? Yeah, yeah. And then I joined when I was 12. So people have always been really good with me for it. So I'd be trying to get off the, off the stage in the dark and people would just grab me and like jostle yeah. me off into the wings. Because, of course, when it goes dark, I can't see anything at all. And so uh, which pantomime did you do this last Christmas? We're going to be doing Mother Goose. And so you've written the script and everything. Yeah, this is the fifth script that I've written, uh, the sixth that I've uh, directed. So you wouldn't like to write straight plays? Well, I'm not sure, to be fair. Sometimes I think that it would be cool to. Like, I've had um, the musical director of our Panto Society has kind of approached me about an idea that he had, that he's had. So I've got some notes about it. But I think um, it'd definitely be different because I've been so absorbed in the world of Panto. A, a lot of the times, though, I forget to put in enough um, audience participation. And I say to the actors, oh, after we've started blocking and things, I'm like, oh, I think we need to add this in here. We need to add in another. Oh, no, she didn't <laughs> because I've only put in two and I should be five. And do you sing yourself? I do, yeah. I did Phantom of the Opera a few years ago and I was, uh, I was Carl Otter in that. So that was very fun. Where did you do that? Quarry <laughs> Bank Musical Theatre Youth Society. So it was a few years ago now. So how did you cope being on the stage and finding people and... You you just had to rely on them being where they were the last time. Fortunately for my character, for anybody that knows Phantom of the Opera, they know that um, Carlotta just kind of stomps around and does whatever she wants to. So yeah. it's a thing of she can just say, I'm going this way and push and push through. But luckily, um, the guy that played Pianji, so Carlotta's um, partner, I was basically linked arm and arm with him whenever I needed to move around the stage. Uh, do you hope to do another one? I'd, I'd love to do uh, another musical, yeah. I absolutely adore them. Kidderminster Operatics doing um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and I really wanted to do that, but the rehearsals were the same day as Panto, so I couldn't. I'm excited to see that. I love Hunchback. My favourite is Les Mis, actually. I love Les Mis. There is a, a youth version of it, but you have to be between 8 and 18, so unfortunately I'm a, I'm a little bit out of the bracket now. Oh, never mind. Maybe an older group at some time. So did you have singing lessons or is it just your... Yeah, so I had singing lessons between the age of seven and 17. So I did up to grade five, the normal, I can't can't remember what the words of it are, with like music theory and stuff. After grade five, I knew it was going to be a lot more like reading music and things, which was really hard. Like you can get it enlarged, but it's just really hard. So after that, I switched over to like musical theatre exams and got up to grade eight, grade eight in that. So, But I think it must be a great escape if you're feeling really fed up and that. If you if you can Definitely. sing and get inside the song, it's an, almost a, a form of escapism. Definitely. I'm sure if you asked my um, my colleagues, they would say it's not an escape for them because a lot of the time I don't notice that I'm just kind of singing at work. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I just switch the radio on and they're like, Holly, we're trying to listen to the radio, please stop. And I'm like, 
And, and, and do you play a musical instrument or not? You just have your voice. Um, I had piano lessons when I was little. I didn't, I didn't pick it up very well, but I like to kind of mess about on the piano. Yeah. Kind of piano. It's obviously in your blood. Is your mother musical or your parents or your sister? My dad really likes um prog rock music. Oh, does he? A very different. Yeah. It was very different much. to me. Yeah, my mom really likes musicals though. Like she, my mom's got a lovely voice, but she sings really quietly, which is oh. completely opposite to me and my sister, who are very loud sopranos. <laughs> Oh, no, I, I couldn't imagine that, Holly. <laughs> you obviously have a lot going for you, but you reach out like Luke and find things. You don't sit at home waiting and feeling sorry for yourself and waiting things for things to fall in your lap. Yeah, I think it's just important to try and immerse yourself in things that are accessible and find yeah. things that you can still do. Because once you start getting into a groove of, not being able to go out. I know it can be really hard and it can be really difficult, especially when you can't see and you feel isolated and cut off from everybody. But even when people know that you can't see, it can be really annoying when they forget. But even my mom, who, you know, can't see out of one of her eyes and has been aware of me and my sight for 26 years, my whole life, I will be like, Holly, why have you just knocked into that? Because like, I didn't know it was there. You know that I can't see. <laughs> yeah, but is it in some way you're not pampered in a special way? You're Treated as a normal child. Yeah, I'm, com- I'm complained that as much as my brother and sister. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> oh, but your mother must have felt when she, it was all diagnosed, she must have felt really as a mother, being a mother myself, guilty that she's got it and passed it on to you, I would imagine. I always try to think that I wouldn't be the same person that I am if I had my sight. I might be, I'd probably be a completely different person a different sense of humour and a different personality if I didn't have my sight loss. And I don't know who that would be. But Luke was saying the same, but of course he had 20 odd years of being that other person. Yeah. But he reckons now he's a much better person because he has empathy, he understands, whereas before he read quite a sort of playboy selfish life. So he feels that he's a better person for having lost his sight, sadly. and <laughs> I find a lot of visually impaired people have the same kind of sense of humour as I do, and we're all very, very funny. <laughs> well, I think the main thing is to keep one's humour in life. You yes. have to, to keep going somehow. You've got to find some, some humour somewhere. So if we have some listeners who perhaps have recently been diagnosed or or whatever, or suddenly uh, gone into a big trough of, of despair, what, what advice would you give them? What, what, how would you sort of help them? I would say try not, as, as hard as it is, try not to see it as something that's a massive barrier, although yeah. it might seem like it is. Um, try to accept any help that you can get. So like listen to music, listen to audiobooks. If, if reading is something that you really enjoy and you feel you've lost, try to listen to audiobooks. I've recently got into them. I pushed against them for years and was like, no, I can still read, even though it would take me two years to read one book. Um, my friends would be like, audiobooks aren't a disability age. Just read audiobooks, stop being silly. So try not to think of disability aids as big negative thing and just something that can help you. If you can get somebody to help you, to access that help if you need it, then that's definitely a positive thing and not something that you need to be scared of. Reach out. Don't crawl into a shell. Reach yeah. out and try and be positive. 
Yeah, I can remember years ago there was a gentleman on the committee who lost his sight in his early 70s mm-hmm. and he went to St Dunstan's on a, a sailing course and uh, he said it was very emotive. The first thing they teach you is the three A's, acknowledge, accept and adapt. And I've never forgotten that. Obviously, mm-hmm. it was appertaining to losing his sight or, or to the people there, but it's to any whatever life throws at us. It's not always, though, easy to accept. And even if it's a case of you accept it some days and some days you don't like it, like I think Luke talks a lot about like the cycle of grief, which he knows a lot more about than I do. He probably mentioned it. He's really smart. Luke's great. I, I love Luke. Um, but it's not a case of it's not. It's a cycle, but you can take steps back and steps forward and you're constantly jumping around in the, Sometimes you feel okay about it and sometimes you don't and sometimes it's annoying and sometimes it's fine. It's definitely a case of just if you have a bad day with it, it doesn't mean that that day is going to be forever. Mm -hmm. The next day you might find something that's really good and you'll feel okay about it again. Yeah. Well, you're certainly inspirational, Holly, and thank you so much for giving your time to chat to me and for me to get to know you and also our listeners to get to know you. And we do wish you all the very best for the future, especially when you move into your own pad. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again. Take care. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. You too. Have a nice day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Our next piece is Richard Jordan Baker sharing life living at Broadlands as if by magic. So here we are, not far from the end of winter. What has February brought? On Shrove Tuesday, probably like most households, we said, why don't we have pancakes all year round? On Valentine's Day, we remembered not to go out for dinner, but instead the cooking fairy risked a Richard cooked dinner. In this household, we have a cooking fairy, a laundry fairy, and a taking cats to the vet fairy. Because, it is alleged, I am unaware of these activities and who carries them out. Apparently, there is a room somewhere in the house that has white metal boxes with openings at the front that whir and whiz and beep and whistle and clean and dry the clothes. Who knew? Similarly, I think there are some who, for whatever reason, are and remain blissfully unaware that the countryside of this county of ours is pretty much all man-made and is managed and worked to look the way it does. If upland grassland isn't grazed, it will revert to forest. Hedges don't plant themselves and dry stone walls soon tumble into disrepair if neglected. Ditches and dikes become throttled with vegetation and fallen trees, fences rot and headlands, field margins, beetle banks... Gates and stiles need maintaining, rebuilding, replanting and repairing. There are no countryside fairies. All must be done by those who work on the land, and the winter sees much of this work carried out. Mainly short, cold, wet, dirty days on the estate see the outdoor boys clearing ditches, building bridges, clearing up after storms Deirdre, Gladys and Boudica. Why every windy day has to now be named, I'm still not sure. Tree planting, mending paths, tracks, footpaths and bridleways, and winching fallen trees out of the river test is all in that day's work for the mainly unsung, invisible small team here, and indeed elsewhere, who tirelessly work to be the countryside fairies. 
Today, I met a good fairy who should not go unsung. She doesn't want me to give her name, so I won't. She lives in Hythe, and two weeks ago, she accidentally drove her car into mine in the hospital car park. She left a small card under my wiper blade, saying, I think I scraped your car, sorry, and her number. I texted her, and she replied. After me getting a quote for the repair, she sent me the money. The repair was carried out. I messaged and thanked her and asked her to make contact the next time she was coming to Romsey as I wanted to reward her for her honesty. I asked her if she liked wine. She said yes. We met today and I gave her a bottle of wine from Luke's. She was lovely and went a long way to restore my faith in people. Finally, I asked if I could write about her honesty in this month's piece and she said yes. She believes there are more kind, good people than unkind, bad people. I agree. This next item is from a series, uh, Hampshire Heroes. And this article is about um, Andrew Ferguson of Hailing Island, Royal National Lifeboat Institution. O hear us when we cry to thee, for those in peril on the sea. These words are from Eternal Father Strong to Save, a hymn traditionally associated with seafarers, especially those in the maritime armed services, but one that also has resonance for those operating in the civilian marine world, including the brave personnel of the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, RNLI, which this year celebrates its 200th anniversary. The scale of today's operation is staggering. RNLI volunteer lifeboat crews and lifeguards saved 506 lives in 2022 alone and helped 39,680 souls. Tragically, around 140 people die annually in UK and Irish coastal waters, and the RNLI's vision is to save every single one of these. The RNLI works with communities and partners to try to prevent people getting into danger in the first place, with males over 15 years old most at risk. It isn't just about the crew members braving the waters, of whom only one in ten has a maritime profession. There are thousands of dedicated fundraisers too, plus volunteer shore crews helping with the launching and recovering of lifeboats. Hampshire is among the dozen or so UK areas that account for over half of accidental coastal deaths, and senior helm at Hailing Lifeboat Station, Andrew Ferguson, has seen plenty of rescues and, sadly, tragedies in his 20 years' service. Hailing from Scotland originally, Andrew moved to London in 1992 for a career in aviation engineering before settling on Hailing Island in 2003. He remembers, I had a house 200 yards from the lifeboat station, so what happened next was probably inevitable. The chap next door was shore crew and told me people like me were needed. Within a few days I was introduced at the station. Hailing Island's precarious location with its mix of commercial and leisure crafts and water sports mean the station is always busy and it responded to over 100 call-outs in 2023 
an increase on 2022's total of 82. Andrew says it really is constant all year at Hailing, although there are still busier times. After the holidaymakers go, we tend to get different incidents. There are a lot of medical emergencies too. Now his two sons, Ross and James, are following in his footsteps as trainee boat crew. Andrew says, my boys were brought up with it. They wanted to be at the station all the time. They'd have their wellies on at the door when I was heading out on a shout. He continued, when they were a bit older, they'd sit on the beach just watching, gripped by the whole thing. Their whole life revolved around it, and they just accepted it. Both boys are now competent sailors and power boaters. I didn't ask or push them to join. One day James just said he wanted to, and then Ross did the same. It was their choice. They do it because they want to, and they do it really well. My boys were lucky enough to join with several of their friends, other like-minded individuals, and they've all been dubbed the boy band. I feel the future of Hailing Station is secure with this age group being so committed. I smile quietly when I see my sons in the boat in their kit, but I'm beaming inside. He says, I've devoted the best part of half my life to the RNLI, but I certainly don't do it for any self-gratitude. If just one person is helped, it's worth it. Being a volunteer has given me a lot more in life than I could ever give to the RNLI and Hailing Station. I've learned so much from doing it. I've met people and built relationships that I wouldn't have had. We lose sight of a true perspective sometimes, with the world so focused on money nowadays, but this is just humanitarian. You can't put a value on grabbing someone before they go under. The cost of running the RNLI in 2022 was £188 million. Of every £1 raised, 81p funds life-saving activities, with the remainder used to generate more funds. The charity says, The RNLI is independent of the government, Less than 1% of our funding comes from government sources. Our life-saving service depends on the kindness of our supporters. 94% of our total income comes from donations. To support this vital and worthy institution for those in peril on the sea, you can look out for activities celebrating its 200th year. And this is track 11. Don't be a bystander, says Dr. Max Pemberton. None of us like to think we'd walk on by when someone needed our help, but sometimes we behave in ways we wouldn't expect when confronted with a situation we're unsure about. While we might like to think we would rush to someone's assistance, we know from studies that often people hang back, and this can have tragic consequences. Research from the British Heart Foundation has suggested that a third of people would not perform CPR if they saw someone collapse on the street, with even some admitting they wouldn't call an ambulance. I don't blame people for this. It's easy to see how this can happen. We convince ourselves we aren't the best person to help, or that maybe we're overreacting or misunderstand what's happening. We don't want to look foolish or wade in when the situation is already in hand, 
Yet this can sometimes mean that no one helps when, in fact, someone desperately needs it. One of the most famous examples of this is the tragic case of Kitty Genovese, who was fatally stabbed in Kew Gardens, New York, in 1964. Subsequent investigations concluded that several people saw or heard what was happening, but did nothing to intervene, although some of the details have since been called into question. This has been termed the bystander effect, a well-known psychological phenomenon whereby individuals are less likely to offer help to someone when other people are present. The more people there are, the less likely they are to help. Following this case, psychology experiments were done to explore the bystander effect in more detail, and they found how widespread it was. I've actually come across many separate examples of this during my working life. When I worked with homeless people, I remember often coming across individuals collapsed on the street whom people were literally stepping over. One of them died in front of me as I called the ambulance. Who knows if she'd still be here if someone had called them earlier rather than stepping over her. There are various factors contributing to this effect. People think that others will get involved or intervene, called diffusion of responsibility. Afterwards, people often say they did not feel qualified or senior or important enough to be the one to intervene. It's also partly down to pluralistic ignorance. Since everyone is not reacting to the emergency, they don't need to either. It's not serious because no one else is doing anything. After a serious incident where people have been affected by the bystander effect, they're often horrified that they didn't do anything. They can't believe they had not realised it was more serious or that they didn't think to get involved. The important thing to understand, though, is that other studies have shown that once people are aware of the bystander effect, they are less likely to be affected by it. Self-awareness is the best antidote to it. When confronted with an emergency... Think to yourself how you would behave if you were on your own. Ignore everyone else and how they are behaving and go with your gut. If you'd call an ambulance, do it. If you'd run for help, do it. If that's how you would have behaved when you were on your own, then that's probably the right course of action. The worst that can happen is that you'll look a little foolish at having overreacted. You might also save someone's life. And this is track 12, and this is our letter from Gary, who has moved from Sweden uh, and is in Limington and brings us a salty letter. Letter from Limington by Gary, not Alastair Cook. Letter dated 27 February 2024. Hello. Uh, this month, I'm going to tell you all about salt, or salt, as my wife insists it's pronounced. <laughs> Why salt, you may ask? Well, because once upon a time, Limington was the second largest salt exporter in the country. Oh, and because we're currently staying in Limington, obviously. Uh, by the way, Liverpool was the largest salt exporter, but that's by the by. Limington was pretty successful at salt production. By 1800, the town was producing around 5,200 tonnes per year. That's a lot of salt. The salt was extracted from seawater and used not just on your fish and chips, but also in tanning and the preserving of meat and vegetables. 
Plus, of course, it was used on fish and chips. Basically, and very concisely, uh, the way the salt was extracted was in something called a saltern, which was a roughly eight metre square pan on the banks where the water was directed and would then evaporate, leaving a briny solution, which would then be boiled down until there was just salt. The brine was boiled down in boiling houses where they'd use coal to heat it up. There's still one of them left, or the remains anyway, uh, down at Moses Dock in Lymington. Because of the British weather, salt production was limited to about 16 weeks a year, but even so, a lot of money was made from it. In fact, there was so much money made that Charles St. Barb, Lymington's most prominent banker and saltern owner, made in excess of the equivalent of £2.2 million one year after tax. Just, just from salt. Well, speaking of tax, salt was such a great money spinner that the monarchy decided to get in on the act and created a salt tax in 1693. That was William III. The tax was then doubled by the government three years later in order to increase revenue. Obviously, they knew a good thing when they saw it. And it wasn't just in Britain that the production of salt was taxed. The Chinese did it first, back in 300 BCE, in order to fund the building of the Great Wall. Maybe it should be known as the Great Salt Wall of China. Hmm. But back here, the salt tax was finally abolished in England in 1825. Uh, but that was too late for poor Lemington, where the salt industry had ceased to be a going concern. Yeah, there were a few small hangers-on, but finally the last salt turn was closed in 1866. This coincided with the arrival of the railway, which meant cheaper salt could be bought into town, yeah, mostly from Liverpool, obviously. Mind you, the Lymington salt industry lasted an awfully long time, given it started in 1132. <laughs> That's 700 years of salt extraction. I'm surprised there's any left in the solent. Incidentally, the very salt-successful Charles St. Barb arrived in Lymington in around 1765 as an apprentice and was soon basically ruling the town. He opened the first bank, was involved in coal mining as well as salt, and, well... He had his finger in more pies than little Jack Horner. And of course, the coal was very handy when it came to boiling the brine in the boiling houses. <laughs> so the next time you sprinkle a bit of salt over your chips, just spare a thought for the poor salt producers of Lymington who these days have to source it somewhere else. <laughs> anyway, until next month, this is Gary saying bye bye. And this is track 13 and we come to our poetry corner. And our poems this month take special days in March as their theme. And first we have Mother's Day, reflected in a poem called Piano by D.H. Lawrence. Softly in the dusk, a woman is singing to me, taking me back down the vista of years till I see a child sitting under the piano in the boom of the tingling strings and pressing the small poised feet of a mother who smiles as she sings. In spite of myself, the insidious mastery of song betrays me back till the heart of me weeps to belong to the old Sunday evenings at home with winter outside and hymns in the cosy parlour, the tinkling piano, our guide. So now it is vain for the singer to burst into clamour with the great black piano appassionato. 
The glamour of childish days is upon me. My manhood is cast down in the flood of remembrance. I weep like a child for the past. And next we turn to St. David's Day and its emblematic daffodils. Yes, this poem is called <coughs> Miracle on St. David's Day and it's by Gillian Clark. An afternoon yellow and open mouths with daffodils. The sun treads the path among cedars and enormous oaks. It might be a country house, guests strolling, the rumps of gardeners between nursery shrubs. I am reading poetry to the insane. An old woman interrupting offers as many buckets of coal as I need. A beautiful chestnut-haired boy listens entirely absorbed. A schizophrenic on a good day, they tell me later. In a cage of first March sun, a woman sits, not listening, not feeling. In her neat clothes, the woman is absent. A big, mild man is tenderly led to his chair. He has never spoken. His laborer's hands on his knees, he rocks gently to the rhythms of the poems. I read to their presences, absences, to the big, dumb, laboring man as he rocks. He is suddenly standing, silently huge and mild, but I feel afraid, like slow movement of spring water, or the first bird of the year in the breaking darkness. The laborer's voice recites the daffodils. The nurses are frozen, alert. The patients seem to listen. He is hoarse, but word-perfect. Outside the daffodils are still as wax, a thousand, ten thousand, their syllables unspoken, their creams and yellows still. Forty years ago, in a valley school, the class recited poetry by rote. Since the dumbness of misery fell, he has remembered there was a music of speech, and at once he had something to say. When he's done, before the applause, we observe the flower's silence. A thrush sings, and the daffodils are flame. The poem I'm going to read is titled uh, Daffodils by William Wordsworth. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. Beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze, continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie, in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude, and then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. And finally, St. Patrick's Day by Jean Blewett. There's an isle, a green isle, set in the sea. Here's to the saint that blessed it. And here's to the billows wild and free that for centuries have caressed it. 
Here's to the day when the men that roam send longing eyes o'er the water. Here's to the land that still spells home to each loyal son and daughter. Here's to old Ireland, fair I ween, with the blue skies stretched above her. Here's to her shamrock, warm and green, and here's to the hearts that love her. Our next piece is uh, entitled Cozy Crime. Author and journalist Michael Smith is talking murder this month with the popularity of whodunits. Those easy-paced detective novels where you try to solve the crime before the detective are perennial bookshop favourites. Witness the recent success of Richard Osman's The Thursday Murder Club novels or Robert Thorogood's similarly titled The Marlowe Murder Club series. Now the Crime Writers Association is getting in on the act with a new addition to its legendary Dagger Awards. The whodunit dagger will celebrate the increasingly popular, modern, cosy, traditional crime and golden age mysteries. The association says the new award will focus on the intellectual challenge at the heart of a good mystery and revolve around often quirky characters. The quirky character is, of course, one of the most important staples of the whodunit. Dilly Knox, himself one of the quirkiest of the Bletchley Park codebreakers, and his two brothers Evo, a journalist, and Ronnie, a successful writer of murder mysteries, devised a set of ten strict rules to which whodunits must adhere. They included that the killer must be mentioned in the first five chapters, and that no supernatural causes, no previously unknown poisons, and no more than one secret room or passage were allowed. The rules were adopted in 1929 as the solemn oath of the Writers' Detection Club, which included such luminaries as Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers. The small South Oxfordshire town of Wallingford can fairly claim to be cosy crime central. Agatha Christie was one of the town's most famous inhabitants. She and her husband bought a house there beside the Thames in 1934, and she was still living there when she died in 1976. There's a bronze bench statue looking out over a park where you can sit beside her. The town and the surrounding villages have also been repeatedly featured as locations in that long-running, cosy crime series, Midsummer Murders. Now Marlowe, just down the river, is to be featured on television as well, with Thorogood, a successful television writer and producer with Murder in Paradise, bringing the Marlowe Murder Club to the small screen. Samantha Bond plays the lead character, Judith Potts, a retiree living alone in the Thameside mansion who drags two of her friends into investigating murder. Can't wait. And this is track 15. Sing it loud. Ollie Mann reflects on whether kids with bad voices who enjoy singing should be deterred or encouraged. Do you remember how compellingly cringy it was the first time you saw a keen, puppyish candidate standing on that plastic star, singing their heart out to the cameras, eyes full of emotion, only to be told that they couldn't sing at all? And then, regardless of whether the wannabe looked like a pin-up or a fugitive from the local hospital, the director would cut to Pete Waterman wincing, and you'd laugh. And then, do you remember what you said as you popped open another packet of Maltesers? You said, who told them they could sing? 
which in the salad days of the Simon Cowell era was what everyone watching Saturday Night Telly was saying, because for an audience weaned on opportunity knocks and new faces, competitions whose contestants were for the most part established regional or touring variety acts, the concept that a singer could feature on an ITV talent show, despite having no discernible talent, felt truly novel. Back then, it seemed that those poor souls who had the ebullient self-confidence to audition for a singing show, yet lacked any actual ability in the skill of singing itself, were in a uniquely pitiful predicament, which must have only occurred due to some pushy stage school parent behind the scenes. So, who told them they could sing, you'd exclaim from the sofa. And I agreed with you. When televised singing contests dominated the cultural conversation, I was in my early twenties, and the lesson I gleaned from them was this. Parents need to step up. If ever I have kids, I told myself, I'll be cruel to be kind. If my children can't sing, I'm going to tell them so to their faces, so they don't end up embarrassing themselves on national television. This dictum became so hardwired that two decades later, I'm still struggling to suppress it. Now, a parent... I understand the benefits of encouraging children to develop their interests. Supporting their personal growth easily outweighs any concerns that they may not actually be particularly proficient at their hobbies. And anyway, if they persist, they might actually improve. So when my older son scrawls a picture of a splodge with two arms and calls it a portrait, I tell him he's a great artist. When he kicks a ball into the wall, missing the goal by two clear metres, I claim he is playing great football. Fortunately, he has no interest in performance. He's so shy of the limelight, he even tried to drop out of the investiture ceremony at the scout hut, lest his contemporaries, all wearing identical ridiculous uniforms, might somehow choose to denigrate his flag-saluting skills. My younger son, however, has apparently inherited my interest in showbiz. He will spontaneously start dancing when I switch on magic at the musicals. He will be the first, and by far the loudest, to launch into a fulsome rendition of Happy Birthday in any given Pizza Express, whether he knows the celebrant or not. He eagerly jumps up to volunteer to take part in the panto, and accordingly he was recently cast as the lead vocalist in his school concert. But he can't sing. He really can't. He shouts, he proclaims, he gurns, but he cannot sing. He's certainly charismatic. I'd typify his shtick as half Pavarotti, half Brian Blessed, if you can imagine that from a four-year-old boy, that is. But let's put it this way, there's not a lot of subtlety in his stagecraft. Some openly laugh at his bum notes. But do I tell him he is wonderful? Of course. His confidence is infectious, his stage presence is unquestionable, and his joy in sharing music is delightful. The sound itself is unpleasant. When he rehearses at home, even the cat leaves the room. Yet still I applaud heartily, and have just enrolled him in the school drama programme. Though, if they bring back Pop Idol, I think I'll talk him out of it. Well, that concludes this week's edition, and so it's goodbye from Robert. Goodbye. And Jeff. Goodbye. And from our engineer, Charles. Bye. 
And from me, Clive Wouters, do enjoy the month of March. <laughs>